Well, past couple weeks have been pretty tough in the news, haven't they? Last weekend, Hugh Cantran, 72-year-old, walks into a nightclub in Monterey Park. He has illegal modifications to his firearms, and he murders 11 people, and he wounds nine others. The next day, down in Torrance, he commits suicide in his van, and the cops find him. Now, according to different sources, Mr. Tran used to frequent this club over the last three decades. He actually met his ex-wife there. Now, this tragedy has once again sparked debates and speculation. Almost immediately after the shooting, people took to social media to let everyone know their points of view in a very kind and thoughtful and polite way about gun reform. Even our father who art in Sacramento, Gavin Newsom be his name, <laughs> made a statement about gun reform. Uh, one of my neighbors posted something on social that said, if you don't support gun reform, then you're not pro-life, which is sort of just like a dig at evangelicals who tend to uh, enjoy the right to bear arms, but also believe uh, in conception. Uh, life begins at conception. Uh, but beyond gun reform debate that was sparked, there was speculation if this crime was racially motivated. And according to investigators around this crime, no one really knows what the motive is. No one, they were speculating at first, but there really hasn't been anything clear. It remains unclear. And others immediately focused on the mental health crisis in America, where people, they're living mentally unhealthy lives in mentally unhealthy contexts, doing mentally unhealthy things. And there once again calls to work through the mental crisis, the mental health crisis that this country faces. Now, that was just last weekend. And then this weekend, while I'm preparing to talk about what happened last weekend, we see what happens with Tyree Nichols. And you look at this situation with Tyree, and you're like, and has anyone seen, you don't have to raise your hand, but did anyone watch the body cam footage? Um, it's dark. It's painful. It's weird. It's like, how did this happen? It's a terrible situation. And uh, I'm on a group text thread. We all have iPhones, so it's like a blue bubble. And uh, I'm on a group text thread with my family. And my sister-in-law is an African-American detective in the Cleveland Heights Police Department. So we are getting her perspective on things because she represents the African-American community and she also represents the police community. And then also, uh, you may not know this, but I have uh, family members like a brother. I have two brothers and a sister. One of my brothers works as a, he's soon to be a battalion chief in the Memphis Fire Department. So they're watching the fallout happen there beyond the police department into what happened with the EMT response. And it's a terrible situation. So we're keeping in touch with them. We're reading and watching the news. And, but it, but there's, there's things that are happening there. Not, 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 that's like this weekend. And so there's protests. So my question to you is, what will you do? There's going to be bad things that are going to continue to happen between now until the day you die. And given the fact that you have access to technology, you're able to see those things in real time faster than we've ever been able to see them in human history. Now, if you're like me, Here's what I do. I want to respond. 
I want to do something about the injustice that I feel when I see it happening around the world, whether it's a shooter, whether it's a watching a terrible police uh, brutality case. And what I found, as probably you have found, is that sometimes when we are faced with injustice, when we see a lack of fairness, when we see racism or violence or bigotry or discrimination or betrayal, sometimes we set ourselves up as the judge, the jury, and the executioner. We set ourselves up. And I've also found that when I allow my mind to become the judge, the jury, and the executioner, these thoughts are just a few steps away of turning into actions, and those actions can sometimes turn into retaliation. Retaliation. Sometimes I want to respond. Sometimes I want to see justice, don't you? Don't you look at what's happening in the world and say, I want to see it changed? I want things fixed. I'm not trying to be like an angry person at a KFC, like an angry Karen that didn't get a right bucket of fried chicken, but I want things fixed. I don't want to be a Karen, but I want to be involved. But is retaliation okay? When is retaliation appropriate? How often and when should I retaliate? Well, if you're smart, which I know you are, because you're here. You're here. And I know you're smart. You know, as much as I know, that retaliation can take many forms. Right? First, there's the obvious form. You want to take that person out back behind the woodshed and knock them over the face with a two-by-four. Violence. You want to retaliate with some sort of physical altercation. But beyond that, other times... Retaliation can take the form of attitudes. It can take the form of words. It can even take the form of passive-aggressive actions towards a certain people group or towards a certain um, population. And basically what happens here is we attack the community from which the perpetrator came from. In a way, we tribalize them, meaning that if he did a bad thing, well, maybe uh, the whole tribe is to blame for creating the conditions for that person to do what he did. Do you ever do this? Do you ever say they are the problem because of what one person did? Ever do this? Ever find yourself mentally retaliating against a group of people who didn't do anything wrong except they were associated with the person that did something wrong? And I think people do this because they're just looking for someone to pay. They're looking for someone to pay the bill, someone to atone for what happened. But the problem is, is when we make someone else pay the bill for something that they didn't do, this can result and easily develop into things like racism and bigotry and ageism and discrimination. And we can become hateful. We can become hateful when we demonize the other. And then we could actually become so hateful that we become the thing that the perpetrator himself became. Lastly, retaliation can take the form of seeking to humiliate, humiliate and embarrass our political opponents. We embarrass them by trying to align our political opponents with what one bad person did. We malign them in order to have them personally fit our personal political narrative. 
But as Christians, we see that the way of Jesus is different. We don't retaliate. We don't follow the way of the culture. So today I want to look at the scriptures, and specifically the Apostle Peter, because he has something to say about, his, about retaliation. Read with me. Read along with me uh, to yourself. 1 Peter 2, and then we jump to verse, uh, uh, we jump to chapter 3, we didn't read one of those verses. It says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and do not repay evil with, with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter, the apostle, one of the OG, original 12, who was, with, who was with his brothers on a boat, and Jesus says, follow me, follows Jesus for three or so years. He goes on. He watches Jesus get illegally arrested. He watches Jesus illegally tried in not a real court. He watches Jesus illegally murdered at the hands of the Romans and then three days later, he watches Jesus rise from the dead, and he has a conversation with him on the beach. He, this Peter, says, listen, we should be following the example of Jesus. We should be following the example of Jesus. And so much so, Peter had the chance to model this. Later on, Peter's writing this to the scattered uh, Christians across Asia Minor. Eventually, he gets arrested, he gets illegally tried, and he's illegally, according to most historians, he was crucified, just like Jesus. And he didn't want to be crucified exactly like Jesus because that, he didn't want to be associated too closely. He thought it was so honorable that Jesus was crucified this way. He asked to be crucified upside down. That's according to most historians. So even... Um, so when we look at the life of uh, Peter and we look at who he had experiences, when he says, don't retaliate, I think, we I think he offers a lot of credibility to the situation. And so Peter, having a relationship with Jesus, knowing Jesus in the flesh, Peter, who eventually went to, him, went to the cross himself and died, he says, this is what we do when we face extreme injustice, when we face persecution. And I'm going to lay these things out for you. He's trying to get us to think like Christians and to think and act like a Christian when we are faced with difficult situations is to, number one, make the difficult choice to not retaliate in the face of persecution. Peter says that we don't retaliate. We don't make threats. Why don't we make threats? Because Jesus didn't retaliate. And Jesus didn't make threats. And why didn't Jesus make threats? Why didn't Jesus retaliate? Well, Peter actually says that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Which leads us to point number two. To think and act like a Christian means that we practice the reality that God is just and will bring his full justice into the world. You see, Jesus believes 
And he invites us to believe that there is a just God that will one day rule the world. He's going to judge everything and everybody. That means he's going to judge you. And he's going to judge me. He's going to judge your difficult neighbor. He's going to judge bad cops and good cops. And he's going to judge mass shooters. He will judge the system of evil that is all around us. So even when, even when Jesus didn't quite see justice happening in the timeline that he wanted it to happen and happening in the way that he wanted it to happen, Jesus, in that moment, instead of retaliating, chose to trust God his Father. He would, God his Father would eventually judge everything. And if justice is coming, it gives Jesus confidence that he doesn't have to retaliate. He doesn't have to take matters into his own hands because there is a bigger thing happening in the world than just our need for justice right now, uh, to retaliate right now. Now let me ask you a personal question. In your own circumstances, in your own situation, how are you doing with entrusting justice to God in the face of pain, in the face of your pain? Maybe you have experienced a betrayal. Maybe you have experienced a situation at your work that is completely uncalled for. It's completely unfair. It's, uh, it's not professional. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Maybe you're experiencing persecution for your faith in your social circle. Or you feel like you're being persecuted for your faith even within your own family. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust that one day God's going to make it right? Do you trust that God is just? Now, some of you here today might need to release this something to, to God. And we need to pray. We need to pray. But, and it's a difficult prayer. And I've had to pray this many times. And I'm sure you've prayed it before. But God, this is hard. But I'm going to trust you. And for some of us, the pain is so deep. The hurt is so deep. That trusting God, that God is going to carry out justice eventually. If we don't get it in our lifetime, this is a daily prayer for you. And you might have to pray it daily for a while. But I need you to know. I need you to know that if you begin to pray this prayer, that God, I need you. I need to trust you. I'm trying to trust just the most basic prayer. You need to know that you're not alone. That our God, in the form of Jesus, also prayed this prayer. And Peter is pointing us to him. And he's saying that we can have hope by entrusting ourselves to the one who will judge justly. Because Jesus did it. Jesus prayed this prayer. Jesus prayed, God, I entrust myself to you. God, my Father, I entrust myself to you. Even though he got murdered. He still entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And we see it worked out pretty good for him and for us. To think and act like a Christian is to make the difficult choice not to retaliate in the face of persecution. It's number two, to practice the reality that God is just and will bring his full justice into the world. And number three, uh, to think and act like a Christian is to seek justice, not retaliation. You see how I said we need to entrust that God is going to judge everything eventually, that justice is in his hands. Do you understand that? But at the same time, we are to pursue justice here on earth. Uh, baked into Peter's thinking is a clear mandate 
to pursue justice. And what does he do? He points to the cross. Peter mentions the cross because at the cross, our desire for, uh, our desire for vindication are validated because injustice and unrighteousness are real and God hates it. Peter tells us that Jesus bore the divine wrath on the cross. His actions on the cross vindicate us because Jesus hates evil. He hates mass shootings. He hates when people who have authority do bad things to people who have no recourse and bad things happen to them. He hates when your boss screws you over. He hates when someone is unfaithful. He hates when someone is two-faced. He doesn't hate them, but he hates the sin. The cross, according to Peter, shows us God's commitment to justice. And if God cares about justice, so much so that he was willing to lay down his life to pay the penalty of sin, how much more should we feel emboldened and empowered to pursue justice here on earth? The scriptures, you can read them in your free time. You will find that God cares about justice. The scriptures care about justice. And everything we see in the cross points to justice. So what does it look like for an American Christian in 2023, the beginning of the year, to seek justice in difficult situations without veering into retaliation? Okay, we want justice, but we don't want to retaliate. What does that look like? Well, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it is a few ideas, and some of which the, these ideas you're not going to care for. And if you don't care for them, feel free to email me at Nicole at PacificCityChurch.com. <laughs> Listen, what does justice look like for the Christian? It means that internally, in our minds, like, like the thoughts we have, that we don't let out, and externally, the things we communicate to other people, it means that we support peaceful protests. It, we support peaceful protests. We have a process in our country for protests, but we support the peaceful ones, internally and externally. And then, which means that as Christians, we live in this tension where we have a place and a platform to protest, but we should not resort to violence. That would, be, that would be us retaliating. Violent protests hurt people, and in a weird way, we become the thing that we're protesting against. And frankly, on another level, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is, by the way, written to Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, I'm so glad. Not sure why you'd spend your morning with us. But if you're not a Christian and you're here with us, if you're, and you're here with us, this is not for you. This is for Christians. This is what Peter says to Christians. One of the important things, the reason we don't retaliate, the reason we don't retaliate with violence is because it hurts our credibility as Christians. It's not just our cause, but it can invalidate our credibility as Christians. How else do we pursue justice? Well, it means that we pursue and support laws in our government that keep order and protect the oppressed. And we also create laws and rules and restrictions that keep our people in authority uh, um, accountable for what they do. It means that we support workplace rules and workplace culture. 
that leads to healthy and vibrant relationships and synergy and productivity. It means that we create fairness at home, in our homes, when no one else is around, in a way that honors God and honors the people that we live with. It means that we can participate and we can seek reform around the stigma of mental health. And lastly, it means that we should consider putting our hope in the future kingdom that there will one day be no need for violence, which means that one day we're not going to need any guns. There won't ever be a need to own a firearm in the future. That day isn't here yet, but it's coming, and I can't wait. What do I mean? Well, the gun debate in this country is an interesting one. And you have two sides animated by their own tribalism and their own political leanings. You have the left and the right, basically. Is anyone, does this sound foreign to anybody? Or no? Okay, cool. Like, the left and the right, they're, they're you know, donkey, elephant. Um, it's this thing. And each side has developed... Uh, what they believe is to be the right position based on their understanding of the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Second Amendment and the Constitution, and basically they're deriving some sort of, um, they read the founding documents and they derive a, a separate, a different kind of conclusion. What did they mean now? Are you an originalist? Should, is, the, is it a living and active document? Should we update? And what do we think about you know, this and that and the other? Well, I don't want to go there and I'm not going to. I just wanted to acknowledge that I understand those things, but I'm not going to talk about that. I want to provide a point of view that I think is rooted in the scriptures. And in the scriptures, we see this narrative arc. We see this massive story about what was, what is, and what is to come. And the story that is being foretold is a story that is that we read about, it's also a story of what's going to happen in the future. And when we read it, we read it like the story is already happening. It's a future-telling story that we read. Okay, And that future that we read in the scriptures is very clear that God is at the center. And he's justly and he's rightly ruling the entire universe. It's a future that has no more pain there's no more suffering. There's no more violence. A future where fairness and rightness rules and there's no more tears. So what does that have to do with guns? We get glimpses of this uh, in the scriptures, in, in, in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah gives us a picture of this future. I want to read it to you. In Isaiah 2, 3 and 4, it says, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Isaiah says 
that God's future is one of such perfect peace that there's going to be no need to have any weapons. There won't even be any wars. And he says that swords won't be used for killing. They'll be used for crops. And spears won't be used for stabbing. They'll be used for cutting fruit off the trees. And I dream about this future. And you should dream about this future too. Let's dream of that future that one day we're not even going to need stuff like that anymore. So here's how I interpret this. I don't have a gun. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a gun. Many of my friends do have guns. I don't think it's a sin to own a gun. And it certainly wasn't a sin to own a sword back when Isaiah wrote this, okay? But here's what I think he's saying. God's future is one of peace. And if we believe that, if we believe that God is one day going to establish perfect peace in our neighborhoods, when that we're, like there isn't going to be a need for weirdness in the alleys when we go into our places in Santa Monica, all the weirdness, all the potential for violence that we see, when all of that goes away, that we should begin to live like that and think like that and be like that, that we should hope for that. And we should trust in God's future more than we trust in our right to bear arms. As I've already established in perfect argumentative form, it is not against the scriptures to own a weapon or not own a weapon, but it's the condition of your heart that God is after in the scriptures, that one day you won't need it. And that's what we put our hope in. We're not putting our hope in our own military might as a country, although I am grateful for it. It does bring peace to the world in some ways. And we're not putting our faith in our ability to defend ourselves and our home. We're putting our faith and our hope in the one thing that will last forever, which is God's future, which came to us and then was established by, to us through Jesus, his son. God is going to make everything right one day and he's going to rule the galaxy with complete and perfect justness. So let's focus our attention there. So those are a few ways uh, that we can pursue justice here on earth. We can posture ourselves for that one big beautiful day. To think and act like a Christian is to make that difficult choice, not to retaliate, to uh, practice the reality that Jesus, that God is just, it's to seek justice, not retaliation. And number four, and this is the toughest one from Peter, save the best for last. Number four, to think and act like a Christian is to do the unthinkable and build a community of grace. Peter calls for the unthinkable. He calls for the unimaginable. He says, don't retaliate. Instead, he says, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter is writing not just to like one guy in Asia Minor, he's writing to a community, a collective of people. And he's like, listen, 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 listen. I'm writing this to a bunch of you. Get in alignment. Be aligned. Get on the same page. Be nice. Be compassionate. Show sympathy towards others. And here's how you repay evil. 
If you must repay evil, write nasty things about them on Twitter. Or, no. He says, repay evil with... Thank you, Ingrid. <laughs> repay evil with blessing. Why? Why? Well, Peter goes on to talk about this throughout first, uh, first and, at least first and second Peter. Uh, and uh, the reason we repay evil with blessing is because this demonstrates to the outside watching world that you are connected to something bigger and stronger and more powerful and more wise and more capable than any other person or any other thing in the entire universe. And you are strong enough to do the unthinkable. You, in yourself, have the, the ability to do something that is unthinkable because there is a God who will one day bring justice into the world and there is a God that loves you and me so much and he loves the outside world so much that he's willing to fight our battles, that we don't have to retaliate, that we're so confident that we can show grace because we see the bigger picture. And this will speak more to the world than if you choose to retaliate. Do you understand? If you retaliate, you're going to look like everybody else. But if you bless in the face of retaliation, people are going to go, what do you believe? And you're going to say, I believe a dead guy came back to life. And that guy is Jesus. And he is God. And he can rule and reign. And one day he will. And he can do something for your life today. There's something more powerful living out the blessing of our enemies in the way that Jesus did it than if we just do what everybody else does. I'm going to tell you an unfathomable story of grace. Um, uh, perhaps you remember reading this in the news. It's a few years back. Uh, some of you are, have a little salt and pepper in your hair, so you're old enough to know. Uh, in 2006, in October, a gunman uh, took, he went into an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania and he kicked out the teacher and he kicked out um, all the men, all the boys. So it's just this guy with a bunch of guns locked and barricaded into a schoolhouse with a bunch of little girls. He then proceeded uh, to shoot 10 little girls, uh, ages 6 to 13. Five of them died. And then, you know, when the police were out there, what does he do? They do what they always do. They, they kill themselves. He commits suicide. Now, here's the unthinkable part. Within hours of the murders, members of the Amish community visited both the killer's wife and they actually went to the killer's parents' house and they expressed sympathy for their loss. And the Amish together, as a community, expressed forgiveness of the murderer and they showed kindness to his family. And shortly after that, a few days later, at the murderer's funeral the Amish community showed up at the burial. And they actually stood in a semicircle at a distance, like you can imagine, 
like you're at the gravesite, and there's a bunch of Amish, like they thought like three dozen or so, that create a semicircle uh, at a distance to observe and to lend their support for the death of the murderer that did just kill their children. And uh, in attendance were nearly all of the victim's parents. So like, they had just lost their little girls, and some of their little girls were in the hospital, some of which would never really fully recover. But days later, the Amish and, their, and the parents who had lost children are standing in a semicircle at a distance, overlooking offering uh, forgiveness and hope, not only to the killer, but support and empathy to the, uh, Rob, to the Roberts family. Interesting small detail about this semicircle. It's so weird. Um, the Amish actually chose the exact spot of all the parts of the field. They chose the exact spot that would prevent the media and the equivalent of a you know, Pennsylvania paparazzi from being able to take pictures of the Roberts family while they were grieving. They were perfectly presented. It was actually the Amish community that prevented the salacious outsider from capturing and earning money from such a terrible moments for the Roberts family. And when this act of forgiveness uh, and sympathy and kindness uh, broke in, in the news, it blew people's minds and for sure it blew the minds of the killer's family. How could they do this? How could... When we meet in a school, I have a nine-year-old daughter. How could they... Uh, how, how? And some of you have children or want children. How could they do this? So when pressed for answers by the media and critics, because there's critics everywhere... They simply responded by saying that their faith confession, their, their, faith conf their faith confession said that they were supposed to act like Jesus. They're supposed to follow the example of Jesus. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, just follow the example of Jesus. Yeah. What a novel idea. Just do the stuff that Jesus did. And they interpreted Jesus' example as one who died for his enemies. And they said that for Jesus to give his life and forgive his tormentors was an act of enormous love and spiritual strength. And this example of love and forgiveness and sympathy burned and was etched permanently into the hearts of of the watching American eye, and specifically in the Lancaster PA community. This week I had a chance uh, to read a book called Forgiven by Terry Roberts. Um, and Terry was uh, the murderer's mom. And she tells the story of watching a bunch of police and fire drive past the house and saying, I hope everything's okay, only to find out that it was her son that committed all these things. And it walks through her story and she tells details of everything that happened in her process of forgiving. But she does this interesting thing. 
she talks about how the Amish community continued to reach out to her, to build relationship, to offer forgiveness uh, because Jesus had forgiven them. And the result was, is that she actually became friends with the people in this community. They began to build relationship. They would visit each other. They would do, uh, uh, do different things with each other. And eventually resulted in them uh, being invited to go across the country uh, on a tour with the Amish. She would get there first by plane, but they took a buggy, so it took a while. I don't know if that part's true. Um, anyway, they're not going to fact check me because they can't. Uh, <laughs> they can't hear this. But anyway, what the result was is this friendship that grew. And she began to be involved in the lives of the girls that were permanently injured as a result of it. And uh, the community watched as uh, an unlikely friendship formed between the Roberts family and the Amish. Um, now, I don't know exactly how to apply the illustration of the Amish to our situation here in Los Angeles, in Monterey Park. And I don't know how to exactly apply it to our situation uh, down in Memphis, Tennessee. And I don't know exactly how to apply this to your situation right now. I do know that there is something in the actions of the Amish there's something in that community that feels powerful. It feels like they were in touch with the living God. It feels like they actually believed that God is just. And one day he's going to judge justly. And it feels like they deeply believe that Jesus died in their place for their sins and for the sins of their murderer. Listen. As Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, we have got to get this right. Because if we retaliate, if we retaliate against our exes, our co-workers, our boss, our family members, if we retaliate improperly to the injustice that we see in the news, we're missing the opportunity to live like Jesus, we're missing out on the meaning of the cross, and we're missing out on the opportunity that the cross affords us to do something amazing, to do something unimaginable, to do something supernatural. Because who knows? Who knows what God might want to do through you for someone else if you choose to forgive? Why don't we all stand?